Mark chapter 9. We're going to be finishing off chapter 9 this morning with a cheery little passage. So I'm going to read through the whole passage, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dig in. <clears throat> so in Mark, perhaps in your Bible these letters are read. Uh, if not, you should see some quotation marks at least. This is Jesus' word to us. It says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. If the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. God, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to hold your word in our hands. And I am grateful, Father, that though I come anytime I stand behind this podium, that I come in weakness, but I am grateful that you are strong that you are most evident in our weakness. So I pray, Father, that you would make that strength evident this morning, God, that it would be your word that is memorable and convincing, God, that you, you, would, you would penetrate the, the defenses that we try to put up around our hearts and heads that we think are protecting ourselves but are only keeping us from the fullness of all that you are and all that you offer for us. God, give us the courage to read your word, to believe it, to trust it, and to walk in obedience to it. I pray, God, that we would know that it is not by us and our works and our hand, but it is by your glorious grace and your steadfast love that we are saved and sustained. We love you. We need you every day. And it's in your precious name that we pray and for the sake of your name that we gather. Amen. So if you're visiting for the first time this morning, you picked a good one. Um, if you are visiting with us and, you're, and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is absolutely for you. If you're here with us this morning and you're still just trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, then, then I want you to hear me say this message is not primarily for you. So you get to eavesdrop in on, on what is going on as, as I communicate to our church family this morning. So, and I hope you listen closely. Um, but Jesus here is talking not to the crowd, but to the disciples. He's talking to his inner circle here. And this is the warning that he is giving his inner circle. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you may remember that, that uh, the conversation that has been going on is is that the disciples have, uh, have begun a, an argument at some point about whether or not uh, which one of them is the most awesome. And Jesus uh, lovingly and firmly corrects them and says, this is, this is not the discussion that you guys should be having. And, he, and he's teaching them 
what is the, what is the, uh, uh, the, the proper way to achieve greatness in, in the kingdom? And he brings a child and he sets him on his lap and says, be more like him. And we're actually going to talk a lot more about that next week as we talk about what does faith like a child look like and how does that result in our joy and our delight and, and increased trust. Um, but then, so, so he starts there and then the disciples point at another group of believers that are, uh, uh, who, are, who are actually performing miracles in Jesus' name and they say, God, Jesus, stop them. They've got to stop these guys. Well, they're, 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 not, they're not following us. They're doing this all on their own. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? They're doing it in my name. Why are you saying just because they're not doing it the way you would do it, actually, you're not even doing this. So you're bummed at them for doing these amazing works in my name because they're not a part of your club. And he rebukes them for that. And in that same conversation, here's where he then turns to this warning. And here's what we need to understand as we're reading this. What sounds like a very heavy-handed few sentences here. right? We need to understand that everything that Jesus says is loving. He's the embodiment, the incarnation of love itself. So whatever he says is said out of his infinite love for his creation. So I, for those of you who know me well, know that I have the tendency to tend towards the non-confrontational. Right? And by tendency, I mean like I am, like I am deep in the ditch of peacemaker, let's avoid conflict at all costs, and, and so my tendency is to look at a passage like this and go, how do I soften this a little bit and, and try to come across a little more delicate, a little more loving? But I need to take a step back and say, do I believe I'm going to communicate it more lovingly than Jesus? That's a dangerous position to take. So if I assume that whatever Jesus is saying, it's more loving than the way I would ever have said it, well, then we need to ask ourselves, how is, how is this strong language, loving. And I, I believe it's loving if we understand that he is trying to urge us away from something that he knows to be deadly serious. And that we are in great peril regarding. So what we see in this passage here clearly is whatever it costs to eradicate sin from your life, it is better than the alternative. Therefore, eradicate sin from your life at all costs. That's how the simple summary that I would give for this passage. And if you notice what's going on in here, the, the better list is generally pretty terrible, right? It's better for you to be dismembered. It is better for you to have your eyeballs gouged out. It is better for you to have a boulder tied to you and thrown into the ocean. That's the better list. So given that that's the better option, we should view the alternative as not that great. Can we all agree there? We're on the same page so far. Okay, so this is what Jesus is setting up here. This is so bad that you would choose this instead of this. This is the more desirable option between these two. Which is a problem because if that's true, if we believe that, if we take Jesus at his word, then we have some issues that we need to talk about in the church. Not just this church, but, but the church overall. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we've, we don't talk about our own personal sin all that much in the church. We talk about other people's sin all the time in the church. We actually kind of 
enjoy that sometimes. Right? We like talking about how everybody else is so messed up. But you know what I almost never hear? In conversations after, after service or in counseling appointments or just in general conversation when we're talking to people, you know what I almost never hear? I very, very seldom hear, Robbie, this is what I am actively doing right now in my life to put to death the sin that is in my own heart that I know is hurting me, hurting others, and distorting the gospel. That's not a conversation I have as much as I should be. What I hear much more about is how someone else is hurting us, right? And what I typically care more about is how someone else is hurting me, how someone else's sin is affecting me. It's easy for us to talk about. In fact, we even kind of enjoy talking about how the sins of our culture or schools or Hollywood or politicians or your neighbor or your spouse is hurting you. And how all those people's issues are ruining the culture and the world and hurting me. But Scripture doesn't command us to judge the world. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it specifically commands us not to judge the world. That the judgment of the world is a few steps above our pay grade. It specifically says, Paul, Paul says, asks the rhetorical question, what, what do you have to do with judging people outside of the church? God judges those outside of the church. That's His job. It's not my job to judge people and criticize people who don't believe in Jesus for acting like people who don't believe in Jesus. I'm commanded to guard my own heart and to help my brothers and sisters. Those of us from within the family the Bible frequently commands you and me to put to death what is earthly in you and in me. And right now, whoever that person is that you're thinking, oh man, I hope they're listening right now. Stop thinking about them because Jesus is talking to you. Find the source of the sin in you. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled. He's not saying them. Tell, counsel them that if their sin causes them to... No, he says you. This is for me and this is for you. Those of us who profess the name of Jesus, he says beware. Figure what is the source of the sin and cut it off, tear it out. Which brings us to the very reasonable question that we arrive at when we land on this passage, right? And that is, is Jesus really suggesting I cut my hand off? And what we'll typically do here is we have the tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater, Right? which is a super weird phrase if you really think about that. That is a very dark <laughs> illustration to think of a different way to communicate. If anybody knows that colloquially there's an illustration that communicates that same thing with, but less gross, let me know. But we all know what we mean by that. The good thing goes out with the bad thing. 
Because what we do is we go, well, obviously Jesus is not suggesting that we actually dismember ourselves. That would be silly. Therefore, there's nothing in this passage that applies to me. And we move on. That is foolish and that is dangerous. Because it is correct, I believe, in saying that Jesus is not actually suggesting that we that we dismember ourselves. He is using intentionally hyperbolic language. He is using extreme, exaggerated language to, to help us understand the seriousness of what it is that he's talking about. And the reason I can say that, and without diminishing Jesus' own words, is because Jesus himself has already addressed the fact that your hand can't cause you to sin. Your hand can't do that. At one point, the Pharisees come to the disciples and say, you aren't washing your hands right. That means you are becoming internally defiled. And Jesus' response to that is, don't be ridiculous. So sin, sin is always only ever generated from your heart, the, your, our figurative heart, the, the, the core, the source of our desires and our motivations. That is always the source of our sin. And so in Matthew, in response to the Pharisees' accusation, Jesus tells them what, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Right? This is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. He says the, the external is not the problem. It's what's going on internally that becomes the outpouring. That is the source of it. If your hand were to, in fact, at some point grow intelligent and start making you sin, you should actually, by all means, cut that thing off. That is the best plan if that were to actually happen. But in the absence of your hand going all Adam's family on you, we we must realize it's not an external problem. It is an internal problem. The problem is not that I need a new hand. The problem is that I need a new heart. The source, my motiva- the source of my motivations and my desires has to change. In Ezekiel, in anticipation of the coming Messiah and what he was going to accomplish, God says this through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, he says, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So he says through, he's pointing towards a future thing that is going to happen where because of Jesus' perfect life and his substitutionary death in our place and his resurrection from the dead, we now can have our heart of stone that is unfeeling, does not feel conviction over sin and be given a heart of flesh that does feel conviction over sin. Now, once we have been justified or, or, or declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus alone, He then begins to sanctify us, which means to make us more and more holy. And the way He does that is He makes us look and love and act more and more and more like Jesus. 
That is the process. So when we receive this new heart, a few things happen. And, and, and for my Baptist brethren, you'll particularly enjoy this. It's an alliteration. Yeah, three C's. How about that? Never do that. It just worked out that way. It was unintentional, but it worked out great. So when, when you receive the new heart, you, what, you, one of the responses to that is conviction, right? Because now I don't have a heart of stone. That conviction just bounces off, and I don't care how I relate to God or what He thinks of me. I suddenly have a sensitivity to that, and I begin to feel, oh my goodness, I am not walking in the holiness that He saved me and, and, and created me to walk in. I am not walking on His mission. I am not loving Him with my, with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am not doing these things. And so we feel conviction for the sin. We know that we are sinners in thought, word, and deed. And that leads to confession of sin. Right? We freely admit our sin to God and to each other because we know He knows all of it. And we believe in the Word that it says that we will find healing when we confess that to one another. And so that conviction of sin that the new heart gives us then leads to confession of sin, which is a weekly, if not daily, process for us. Right? That's not a one-time event. When we live in the rhythm of repentance, that means this is, this is a regular rhythm of our lives. Of As that sin comes to our attention, we confess that to God and to others, in particular those who've been affected by that sin. And then that leads to constant vigilance against that sin. Right? Because we want to guard our hearts and the church and the gospel from the effects of that sin. And we now know that because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we now can make headway in seeing that sin ultimately defeated in our lives. These are strong words from Jesus because He understands how deadly serious this is. Right? There are several reasons why ignoring the sin that, that is currently affecting us is so dangerous. Aside from the fact that it is arrogant blasphemy and rebellion against God, which is what sin ultimately is. It is not an oops, it is not a minor infraction it is spitting in the face of our Creator God in treasonous rebellion. It's a big deal. The way Hebrews says it is it is trampling on the broken body of our Jesus. It is a really big deal. But aside from that, and the reality is most of us would not argue sin is no big deal, right? Sin as a concept most of us would agree sin is a big deal, right? Because of sin, because it's so bad, it, Jesus had to come and deal with it, right? And so we, most of us would not argue that, that sin is not a big deal. Our argument is typically that my sin is not that big a deal, at least compared to yours. It's difficult for us to believe that my sin is so destructive, so blinding, so deceitful, so acidic, so cancerous that it is deserving of the righteous wrath of the Creator God of the universe. That is difficult for us to accept. And if we truly understood that, then we would know that dismemberment and drowning is actually the better option to letting our sin go unchecked. 
for our own hearts and for those around us. If we understand the seriousness of sin, we would read this passage and go, oh, Jesus has taken it a little easy on us, don't you think? Rather than feeling like, man, why is he so harsh? Because he understands the destructiveness of this. Not unlike a cancer that is eating away at us. And the reality is, whether we know it's there or not, or whether we want to pretend like it doesn't exist, that does not stop it from doing its damage. Though unlike cancer, sin is communicable. It will and does affect and often infect those closest to you and the church as a whole. That's why it's such a big deal. Unchecked bitterness will destroy relationships and joy. Unchecked fear will cripple your decisions and stress out the people around you. Unchecked gossip and complaining will distort the gospel and corrode hearts and steal joy. Unchecked lust will erode your marriage and distort friendships. Unchecked pride will kill your faith. Unchecked self-righteousness will kill other people's faith. Unchecked apathy and laziness make us an obstacle to the gospel. Sin is a really big deal because it's damaging you and it damages others. It's also a big deal and ignoring it is so dangerous because it reveals certain things about what we're really believing. If we believe that sin is not a big deal and we don't really need to worry about it anymore, that reveals a deformed view of God. Because if sin is actually not a big deal at all, if God is not holy, and God is not just, and God is not omniscient, and God is not omnipresent, and He is not the Creator, and He is not ultimate. If God is none of those things, then sin actually isn't a really big deal. If, though, He is any of those things, and He is, in fact, all of those things, then sin is a really big deal because it profanes His holiness, it mocks His justice, it ignores His omniscience in our attempts to, our silly attempts to try to hide it from Him and others. It worships the creature rather than the Creator and it demonstrates that we believe that we are actually ultimate. It also reveals a, a deformed view of humanity. Because it reveals that we either believe that, that we're incapable of change or we don't need change. I'm just fine the way I am. Even secular scholars and, and philosophers and sociologists often accidentally agree with Scripture when they say that our biggest problem to overcome in our life is ourselves. Right? Our biggest problems are not our circumstances and it's not other people's junk. My biggest problem is me. And what's going on inside me and distorting my perspective of things and affecting what I expect out of you. And when our image of humanity is distorted, then we find ourselves saying things like, well, that's just who I am. Or this is just my personality. Which in the biblical worldview is true to an extent. That is who I am in the flesh, enslaved to sin and self and Satan. That is just who I am when I'm living entirely in the flesh. But if I claim belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and I belong to Him, then the reality is that like we just read, 
I have been given a new heart, a new life, that we are a new creation in Him, that the old is gone and the new has come, that you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. So a deformed view of God and a deformed view of humanity leads to a deformed view of the gospel. Because then it becomes either powerless and it can't really change us anyway, or it becomes just good news for people who are so good that they don't technically even need saving anyway. Rather than understanding that, as Colossians tells us, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then when Christ, who is your life, appears, and you will also appear with Him in glory, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. God is wanting us to look more and more and more like Him. And because of this, we need to change the way that we counsel one another as believers. We need to change the encouragement that we give each other. Because what does it say here at the the beginning? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So who are the little ones that he's talking about there? It is oftentimes we assume he's talking about children, which is possible. It's possible that he still has the child on his lap that, that he called over a few minutes ago as for an illustration. Though this, this is coming right after him talking about those other believers. So it's also possible, and Scripture will often use the term little ones for young believers, for people who are young in their faith. And so it's also possible that the warning is and people who are coming to you for counsel, for advice in the gospel, don't lead them astray. Don't lead them away from the gospel. And for a long time, I dismissed this verse as saying, like, well, I'm not like hiding in the corner, you know, twisting my mustache, trying to manipulate people into sinning. Like, of course I'm not doing that. But neither were the disciples. It was an accident. They were inadvertently giving bad counsel. And Jesus' response is, no, 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 don't do that. That ends very badly for everybody. So there's almost more weight in a lack of intentionality in our counsel, inadvertently leading people away from the gospel. And Jesus is warning, please don't do that. And we can do that all the time in the church, honestly, with the best of intentions. How do we often respond when someone comes to us and confesses sin? When someone comes to us and says, you know, they're struggling with holiness or they don't look as much like Jesus as they would like or, or, or that when they read the Bible and they see what the biblical church look like, they're struggling with, man, I don't look anything like that. Oftentimes in our desire to encourage that person, we'll say things like, Hey, we all sin. Don't make too much of it. Oh, no, no, no. You're doing great. Don't be so hard on yourself. 
Or, no, no, don't think about that. Look at all the really good things that you're doing and, and focus on that and be encouraged by that. And there's two primary reasons why that is oftentimes our response. And I mean our, I've said the same thing. One of the reasons is self-preservation. Right? Because oftentimes what that person is sharing is either the same thing I do or not nearly as bad as what I do regularly. And if I have to acknowledge, yeah, that's sin, then that means I have to acknowledge that my stuff is also a mess. And that doesn't sound awesome. So it's easier for us to kind of do the smoke and mirrors like, no, no, no let's just talk about the stuff we're doing great and not talk about the stuff that is actually eating us alive and diminishing our faith in and trust in and delight in Jesus. The other reason is, is a genuine desire to encourage that person. Right? And if that's you, I have the, the, the next couple minutes, I don't want to sound in any way condemning or discouraging. I simply want to clarify and say, I believe that your desire is to encourage your brother and your sister, and we are accidentally doing it oftentimes in a way that is hurting, that is doing harm rather than help. And so I want, I want to help us in this. Because if our response to confession is, no, 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 you're, you're doing great. Look at all the good things that you're doing. The problem is not just that that's terrible advice. The problem is that that is accidental heresy. We are preaching heresy to that person in that moment. Because what you are saying functionally when you say, I think you're great, look at all the good things you do. What you are saying is, I declare you righteous because of your works. That is the accidental opposite of the gospel, church. And if I have ever said something that felt that way to you, I, please forgive me for my error in that. And if you have ever said that to someone, I, again, I don't say that to be condemning. I say that, so that just for the sake of clarity so that we can say, I believe that that is not our desire to communicate that to our brothers and sisters, but that is what we are functionally saying. When you say, I think you're great because of the good things you do, you are saying, I declare you righteous because of your works. You don't need Jesus the gospel doesn't have anything to say about your situation right now. Jesus died for no purpose. Trust in your works and your own goodness rather than on him. I know that's not what we want to communicate. In our desire to be kind, we are inadvertently incredibly unkind because it's a little like your friend coming to you with a bleeding head wound and because you don't want to ruin their afternoon, you say, no, you look great. I kind of like how your hair is like all matted down in the back like that because of the blood. That's not helpful. Your friend needs help. Don't worry about discouraging them. Get them the aid that they need immediately. Don't accidentally disciple that person away from Jesus and accidentally encourage them to justify themselves by their own 
actions because best case scenario, they don't believe you because they know what's going on in their heart and they know that they don't look like Jesus and so they're not going to believe you and so they're not going to be encouraged anyway. Or worst case scenario, they do believe you and they begin to trust in the goodness of their own works rather than the gospel of Jesus. The way Paul says in Galatians is, I am astonished, he tells the Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who distort the gospel of Christ. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected, perfected by the flesh? And the same thing that saved us is the thing that sustains us. So it's not we needed faith to get in the club, and now it's up to our works to prove that we deserve to be here. It's faith from beginning to end. It is grace from beginning to end. And for those of us who trust in Jesus and believe in His gospel, and you know that we are far more sinful than we would ever dare to think, and yet are far more loved than we would ever dare to hope, then then we must love our brothers and sisters enough to take their sin seriously and honor their confessions with gospel encouragement, not Christless empty words. Paul warns, do not let someone deceive you with empty words. I am not actually better than I think I am. I am actually much worse than I think I am. And I'm a pretty self-critical person. And the reality is the Bible will tell me I don't even, I haven't even begun to know the depths of my depravity. Right? And it is our Father's, because in His love for us, our Father chooses not to reveal every dark crevice of your heart and every consequence of your selfishness all at once. Because if He did, it would send every single one of us into a suicidal despair. Nobody could handle that. And so in His love, He goes, all right, let me just give you a little bit. We'll work on that. Okay, now let's work a little bit more. And so the sanctification process is a process rather than God just going, all right, here's how much of a mess we are. And I go, where's the nearest millstone? Get me out of here. I can't handle this. So when I come and I confess, I don't need somebody to tell me, no, 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 you're better than you think you are. Because I'm not. I'm worse. I'm much worse than I even think I am. What I need someone to tell me is, oh, but Robbie, the cross, it is so much more powerful than you think it is. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. But grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to our refuge, the mighty cross. That is where I find my encouragement. That is where my sin is handled. That is where my sin is defeated. And that is where I find my hope and my encouragement. So what if then, when that friend comes to you and confesses, we honor their confession and we worship Jesus in response to that. So we say instead something like, I'm so proud of you for having the courage to speak that out. 
That is so awesome. The Bible promises that there is real healing to be found in confession. So I'm so proud of the courage that you had in confessing that. Let's take a minute and thank God for loving you so much that He would bring that thing to your attention so that He could free you from it. Let's praise Him. Let's worship Him together that He would display His incredible love for you so much that He would not want you to stay where you are in this thing that is hurting you and others. Let's thank our Jesus for dying for that exact precise sin so that you would not have to pay the penalty for it. Let's thank our Jesus for taking on all your shame and all your guilt so that you would not have to keep carrying that burden with you, but you could set it down and walk in freedom and in joy. Let's honor our brother and our sister, encourage them for having the courage to confess and then Turn that into praise of our God that not only did He love them enough to bring that to their attention, but He loved them enough to conquer that sin at the cross. We often try in our own lives and in the lives of others to avoid the consequences of sin as though the consequence of sin is worse than the actual sin itself. But the reality is sometimes that consequence is helping us like pain, right? Part of the function of your nervous system is to let you know when something is wrong. Pain alerts you to the fact that something is not the way it should be. And God often uses the consequences of sin like a spiritual nervous system, right? Letting us know that something is wrong with our heart, that things below the surface are not as they should be. And when we are alerted to that problem, then we have the choice to how we're going to respond, either to flee and, and run into deeper slavery or toward freedom. My grandfather had a mild stroke that was mild enough that he didn't even know what happened. And as a result, he melted off a good portion of his hand because he was cooking himself some breakfast and his brain was not receiving the signals from the nerves in his hand, and so he did not know that his hand was literally over the burner. He was wishing that he had had some pain in that moment because that pain is the thing that makes you go, ah, I got to get out of here. Things that we don't know are going on suddenly surface. So, About a year and a half ago, maybe, um, I used to go over to the high school once or twice a week. Ty Schenebeck is the PE teacher over at Peshtigo, and he opens up the gym every now and again to, uh, for the students to play ultimate frisbee over there, and he lets adults come and play, and so it's usually whatever adults show up versus the students. And I enjoy playing that. I'm not very good, but uh, I enjoy that. I like the exercise, and it's fun. If you don't know what Ultimate Frisbee is, it's a, it's a team-based Frisbee game. It's a little like, I don't know, like soccer-ish, where you're two, two teams, and you're just trying to get the Frisbee to the other side, and vice versa. So one time, I'm, one morning, I'm playing, and, and, and my team is, is on the way down. We get the score, great. And so I turn to go back the other direction, and I'm suddenly on my face on the ground. I, my leg just like went out right from underneath me. And I was like, that's super weird. That hurt a whole lot, but 
doesn't feel like anything's broken or whatever. I step up, I get up, I take like two more steps, and I, I feel like someone is taking an ice pick and just jamming it in between two of my toes. It is a horrible feeling that I can't like, so then I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm like, well, this is definitely going to hurt my game. I'm already not good. This is making me officially useless. And, and so I, I, I kind of sit down, I take my shoe off. I'm like, man, is there something in there? Like, did I just... He's like, break my toe or whatever, and, 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 and Ty comes running over uh, and says, hey, what, you know, what's, what's going on? And, and I said, man, I just have this crazy pain in my foot right now. It's super weird. It's like in my, in my toe. And he's like, all right, well, take your shoe off. Let's, let's take a look. You know, I sees this all the time, so he knows what to check for, and, and, and so he's, he's like, squeezing, like, okay, does this hurt? Nope. Uh, okay, does this hurt? Nope. Uh, okay, like, do you, do you see any bruising or anything on there? Nope. Any, anything in your shoe? And here's where man's true character is really on display. Because at this moment, Ty has several options of how to respond to me. Because he is a man of great character. His response was, all right, well, maybe just you know, go over to the sidelines and kind of rest a little bit and see if it gets better. A man of lesser character would have responded with what he was probably thinking, which was something along the lines of, oh, sounds like a pretty serious case of injurious imaginarius. Maybe stop being a wuss and get back in the game. No, he responded with kindness, and I appreciated that. And, but it wouldn't, the, the pain didn't go away, and so I, I, it kind of took me out of the game for the rest of the time. And, and so over the next several weeks and, and, and coming months, it, it didn't get any better. It was getting worse and worse and worse, and I realized, like, okay, something is clearly not right. Something is wrong. I can't tell. Like, it's not, nothing's broken. The, like, I have no idea what's going on. So finally... I went to the podiatrist, and the podiatrist immediately tells me what's going on. I have something called a neuroma, which if you are not familiar with that, which I don't know why you would be, because I had never heard of it until I got it, but what that means is I have a nerve in my foot that is swollen, and it is right in between two toe bones. So what those sharp bones will do is rub like this on an inflamed nerve which if any of you understand nerve pain, no, that's not the best scenario. And so at, he's like, yeah, this is, this is going to hurt. I'm like, yes, it does hurt regularly. And he said, okay, well, like, so what are my options? What can I do about this? And he said, well, um, option one is I can take a, quote, rather large needle and I can insert it deeply between your two toes. And, at, and, and as soon as like, he's, he's not even finished with the sentence and I'm already inadvertently going... I don't care what choice B is, we're going with B. Like, B could be hold your foot in the fire, and I'd choose that over jabbing a leg. Like, that's what it already feels like, only you're doing it on purpose. Like, that feels much worse. And all that was going to do was just, it would numb the pain, and I would have to keep coming back every month to six weeks. So option A, jam a giant needle between my toes every few weeks. Thank you, no. Or B, and he said, okay, you just, you're going to have to change the rhythm of your life. You're going to have to change your habits. You're going to have to, I've got to get these little inserts to put on my foot to take the pressure off a certain kind of foot. You're not, I can't do some of the things that I, can't, that I used to enjoy doing. I can't play Ultimate Frisbee anymore because that's going to aggravate it, which honestly is no great loss to the Peshtigo Ultimate Frisbee world. 
but I'm a little bummed about it because I enjoyed doing that. But I had to change, I had the choice of I'm going to change my habits. And the reason this, I like, I particularly like this illustration is it's a two for one because it both addresses the fact that when given a much worse choice, the alternative is better, right? So that's the obvious part of the first one. But the other one is I had no idea that anything was going on until the pain struck, until the consequence of that irritation flared up. And then at that point, I have the choice of I can numb it, which actually causes more pain in some senses and doesn't fix the problem, or I can change the rhythm of my life so that this doesn't happen. So here's why I think Jesus is amazing. One of the many reasons. We're almost done. I'm already, I've already gone too long. So here at the end, all of a sudden he starts talking about salt, which seems like such a non sequitur, such a change in subject that most commentators will say, here Jesus changes the subject to something totally different, very abruptly. And I don't think he is. So after saying, do whatever you must do to remove the source of sin, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Do you know why salt preserves I just learned this, and it is fascinating to me. Fascinating just because I think the science is fun, but also fascinating because I can imagine Jesus giving this illustration and having it in the back of the head as he's doing it, saying, you guys are going to understand this, and it's going to be a helpful illustration now. But a couple thousand years from now, when they invent an electron microscope, it's really going to blow some minds. The reason salt preserves is that salt extracts every bit of water from every cell of the meat. And so what it does in extracting all the water from whatever cell of whatever it is preserving, it creates an environment where bacteria and other microorganisms cannot grow. It extracts what is needed for the microorganisms that cause, that, that cause spoilage and rot to grow. It, it, it removes that. I'm going to say that again. It removes the thing that allows decay to happen and creates an environment where it can't grow. Did Jesus actually just change the subject? No, he did not. He just made the illustration more awesome. Saying, remove the source of what, in other words, he's saying, it's another way of saying, cut off the hand. At, cover it in salt, which is an active attempt to remove the thing that allows the thing that causes decay to grow. Change the environment so that thing can't be there anymore. And when he says everyone will be salted with fire, he's, he's likely referencing what, what Paul then talks about in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about on the day of judgment, everyone's work will, become, will be put on display. It says because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the fire that anyone has done has been built on, on that foundation has survived, then he will receive a reward. So he says, if you build on a foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, it will, 
it will maintain. But if you build with wood and hay and straw, it will be burned up. And so here he says, fire creates an environment where wood and hay and straw can't survive. Only what is precious can survive. Because everyone's going to be Everyone's going to be salted with it. So have salt in yourself. Make your heart and your life remove the things that make it possible for the things that cause decay to grow. Cut off the hand. So how, how do we do that? What does it look like and how do we encourage one another to do that? And here's where, here's where we're going to end. And Number one, I'm going to blaze through these pretty quickly. Number one, Reading, studying, meditating on, believing with the intention of obeying the Word of God. We cannot get away from that. It is God's revelation of Himself to us. It is how we grow in our understanding of who He is. And the, greater we, the more we understand who God is, the more we get to know the real God as He has revealed Himself to us, then the more we will understand how serious our sin is and how amazing the gospel is that it rescues us entirely from it. Number two, we need to speak to God, right? Prayer with the purpose of asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the areas of sin and blindness in our lives, asking Him to give you the courage to admit and to surrender to Him all of those things and to know that He already knows and that Jesus has already paid for that so there's no place for shame and guilt and condemnation anymore. Jesus has already taken all that on Himself. So speak to God, also speak to others. Ask those who know you the best. See, what are, what are the areas in my life that I just don't see? What are the areas of habitual sin that, that you have seen in me and maybe you haven't had the courage to tell me, but I'm not seeing? Help me with that. No one sees themselves with perfect clarity. Not a single one of us. We need others to help us to see what we have been spiritually blinded in, in ourselves. And confession is not an option. It is a biblical command. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And then four, we need to take grace-driven action. We need to make those hard decisions to see what is the thing that I need to remove from my life. What is the thing that makes it so easy to submit to that temptation and, and get rid of it? Speaking frankly right now, if, if your argument is, I can't stop looking at pornography because I literally have a device in my pocket that makes it easy whenever I want to, you might need to buy a flip phone. Right? And we hear that and we go, well, that's ridiculous. No, you know what's more ridiculous than having a flip phone? If what Jesus says is true, then what is more ridiculous than being the guy who's walking around with a flip phone is being the guy who goes, quote, who's thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, thinking, well, at least I got to keep my smartphone. That's the weird option. That's the irrational option. As I was typing this out this week, like that sentence out this week, I felt conviction. Because a few, a few months ago, I felt conviction that I was spending too much time on my phone. I, and I mentioned it to my family. I said, like, man, I, my, my face 
is in a screen way too much. I, I get a lot of text messages and emails and I feel a bit of a compulsion to respond quickly. And, and, and so my phone is out of my pocket and in my face a lot. And I had mentioned that to them that I thought that I needed to do something about it. And I realized as I'm typing this out, nothing had changed. I felt seriously convicted about that because that means all of that time is time, all that time that I'm staring at a screen is time that I am not looking in the eyes of my wife or my daughter or my son. And that is squandered time. That is not making best use of the time, which is directly commanded twice in the New Testament. And so for me, that was sin. And I had to repent of that. I had to repent to my family. And I had to tell them, these are daddy's new habits. This is what daddy's doing now when he gets home and this is where his phone is going to go so that it's not going to be in my face and I can be, wherever I am, I can be there, holy. There are some people in your life that just make it impossible for you to not gossip and grumble. When you're around them, no matter how hard you try, you just get pulled into it and start complaining about stuff, the world, politics, the church, your family, whatever that is. And you might need a season away from those people. You might need to step away from that relationship for a season to get your heart into a healthy place again. If you find yourself blinded by self-righteousness and unable to see the, your own sin in your life, then, then you might need to flee the isolation that you have created in your life the barriers that you have put up so people can't speak correction into you and seek the kind of authentic, caring community of people who would love you enough to help you see that sin is harming you, but that the gospel of grace is bigger and better. The cost, church, of not doing so is too great. I'm going to have the band come up and, and lead us in, in worship of one more song as we wrap up. As they do, I just want you to understand the cost of not taking our, our sin seriously is great. I miss out on walking in the freedom from slavery and sin that Christ bought for me on the cross. I'm, I, I continue to carry shame and guilt and regret that Jesus chose to carry for me so that I wouldn't have to anymore. I continue to live in the same fears and anxiety and conflict because I don't trust that Jesus' way is better. I miss out on joy. I miss out on contentment. I miss out on peace. I miss out on understanding just how extravagant the Father's grace truly is for me. I miss out on real gratitude because I don't believe that I've been saved from anything really serious. I miss out on a real sense of awe and wonder that comes from the knowledge of just how holy how powerful and how merciful our Heavenly Father truly is and how much I wish I was more like Him. And I miss out on feeling fully loved by the Father because I still think that His affection for me is based on my behavior rather than His choice and His grace. So let's be a church. Let's be a church that walks in the fullness of all that our Jesus lived and died and resurrected to purchase for us. Let's walk in the joy and the contentment and the peace and the delight that comes from saying, yes, I am a mess and these are all the ways I don't look like Jesus, but praise Jesus. He has given me His righteousness and I can trust in His grace and His acceptance of me.
to the glory of the Father and for our ultimate joy.